Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Okay. Morning, church. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'll be reading the scripture today. I'll be reading from Matthew 1. I'll be reading verses uh, 1 to 17, which is the genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zariah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. There's like two things I want to say right from the beginning, and one of them is, uh, Dave, that was, thank you for that. Um, yeah. I hope that'll all make sense in a few minutes. Uh, the second thing is that there's, there seems to be like this sense of heaviness in the room, just like, you know, this whole week and, and beyond, and even the way that, you know, Michelle was leading in the singing and explaining the reckless love of God, and then the way that Kate prayed and all these kinds of things, and there's just this sense of brokenness and this sense of need, this sense of like, man... Like, we can't do this on our own. And if you're feeling that, then, man, am I ever glad you're here. Because this is the place where you can come and say, I don't get everything that's happening in this world. But we can do that alongside other people who are trying to figure it out, knowing that we are worshiping and coming to get to know the living God who's got it sorted out. He has answers for us. And so this is the place to be. My name is Dave, and uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, it's really good to be with you. I um, am on staff here. I get to serve as a, a teaching pastor, so VJ and I alternate back and forth. Uh, but I haven't been here since Good Friday. I haven't been slacking. Um, I've just been in Bolton. We have a, a congregation in Bolton, Bolton Alliance Church, uh, and I do some oversight there. And actually, just want to report something really exciting. For the past number of months, we've been working with this congregation over there, 
and working towards, uh, you know, through discernment and prayer and making a big decision around whether or not Bolton Alliance Church will dissolve as a charity, as a church, and formally join Upper Room Community Church as a site. And so last Sunday was our annual general meeting, and we voted, and it was 100% in favor. And so, yeah, praise God. We are so excited about that because... Uh, over and over and over, and we've just seen so many ways that he has been faithful, the way that he's been unifying the community there. There's a tremendous amount of brokenness in the story of Bolton Alliance Church over the past year, and just to see the way he's been restoring and reconciling, it's amazing, which means for the next uh, number of months until the end of this year, we're going to be doing quite a bit of work to uh, launch what will become Upper Room Community Church Bolton, um, and this is just the beginning uh, of so much uh, of this multi-site vision that we're after in our REACH vision. So actually, I want to point your attention to um, the podcast. So we've been doing these REACH Roundtable podcasts, and this past week, VJ, Malcolm, and I uh, spent some time talking through a whole bunch of things that are happening regarding this REACH vision. And so that podcast is going to be pushed to wherever you receive the sermon. So it's going to be on our app. Um, it's, uh, if you use a secondary podcast app or whatever, you can find it on the website, you can get that. It's about 25 minutes, but it's worth listening to to see what God is up to. So if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, uh, then you'll know that we are uh, well underway in our series entitled Being Human. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Vijay talked about, you know, what does it mean to be a man and this idea of manhood, which leaves me with the topic of womanhood. And uh, one thing that might be coming to your mind right from the beginning is this glaring issue, and that is I am not a woman, I am a man. And so there might be this question of, well, what gives you the right? Or there might be, well, how can you be so sure? And, and what qualifies you? And if those are actually the questions I was asking myself um, in the process of preparation. And so if, those, if that is what you're thinking, you know, there's actually this element of uh, Vijay and I, or anybody else for that matter, who preaches, from, uh, who preaches anything, that we are underqualified. We are ill-equipped. We don't have all the answers, which is exactly why every week, if you've been with us, you know we go to the Scripture we go to the Word of God and we say, this is where the authority lies. And we are broken people who, by the grace of God, have the opportunity to talk about um, what God has said is true. And so my, earnest, my, my honest uh, hope and prayer has been that I will just be able to present to you what I've discovered in the Scriptures and that I will not mansplain a single thing. That has been a prayer of mine for the past couple of weeks, okay? Um, so on that, I mean, if I'm totally honest, I, which I hope plan to be, I mean, that's, that's the idea, um, I've never naturally seen things from a woman's point of view. Okay, any men, are you with me? Let's say you've never naturally seen things from a point of view. And as a matter of fact, even if you ever have, it's been only because a woman has helped you, has, tried, has attempted, has, has long suffered to help you see things from her point of view. Is anybody else with me on that? I think that's, that's, that's how we're made, right? And so, so men, we don't naturally see things from a woman's point of view. Women, you don't naturally see things from a man's point of view either. Um, and so there's been this tremendous learning curve that I've been on for my entire life, really. And I don't remember a particular time where I was taught anything like um, men and women are distinctly different in that men are more valuable or men are more important or men should get the, the first place and, and all that over women. I don't remember being taught that explicitly, but as I pay attention to the culture around us, even as I look back to the cultural upbringing that I have, as I look all over the place, I see that there is this sense that men and women are distinctly different, and somehow, when you get to the end of it, men are better than women. And this isn't actually just me, because we did a survey, and about 80 or more of you contributed, and a couple of the things that you said is that women are, or should be, one of the following things. Quiet, clean, thin. By the way, this is both men and responses from both men and women, okay? Submissive, helpful, are weak was the context of that one, should be servants, they are docile, they should be obedient, 
They're often illogical or they're overly emotional. So I'm not just making this up. This is what you said. Well, this is what I said too. I'm not going to tell you which one was mine. But we responded to the survey, and so what we're seeing is that this isn't just some, an idea of my upbringing. This is very much something that still exists. And so we've got to beg the question, this begs the question, where does this all come from? What's the idea here? I think that our culture, the society we live in, does not view women as equal or as valuable or as important as men. And even saying that out loud feels bad. But I think it's the truth. And there's a number of examples we can look to in our society, but one I'll point to is Gender Pay Gap Day, which was just a few weeks ago. Basically, this is a day in our province where attention is drawn to the fact that women make significantly less on the dollar than men do for doing the exact same job, okay? And so this is a day for advocacy, a day for awareness, a day for protest, and all of those types of things. And so one study looked at 240 of the top jobs in Canada, and it looked at 20 of those in particular. So the 20 top jobs of the 220 top jobs in Canada. Did you follow that? Okay. And what was discovered is that on average, men make between 24 and 40% more than a woman does for doing the exact same job. So if you want to look at that a different way, if we just look at it in dollars and cents, men are making between 24 and 40% more on the dollar for every dollar that a woman earns. Why? Because in our culture, women are not viewed as valuable or as equal or as important as men. And we might live under this idea that, that we live in an egalitarian society. And I think that there are these ideas that are, are pushed around and maybe it gets politicized and all these kinds of things. And, and that, that might be an idea, that might be a theory, but when you just look at one example, and there are a myriad of others, when you look at just this, you see, well, that's broken. That's not equality. That's not equity. There's something that's not quite right about that. And you want to be a little bit more real for a second? This does not just exist in the secular world. As we go back and we look through church history, the 2,000 years since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus back into heaven, as we look at what's taken place in the formation of even the faith tradition that we're a part of today, we can look at some of the most significant influencers throughout the years and see that they weren't particularly helpful to this whole discussion. So let's go back 500 years to Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, one of the leaders who came up against the Catholic Church and said, Scripture is enough. By faith alone we are saved. By grace we are saved. It's a gift of God, not something that we, that we are in a tremendous person, okay? Here's one thing he's quoted as saying. Why do girls mature much faster than boys? Because weeds grow faster than roses. What do you do with weeds? You complain about them? You, just, you get rid of them? What do you do with roses? You stop and smell them. You put them front and center. You give them as a gift. Go back about a thousand years to a guy named... St. Augustine of Hippo, a tremendous philosopher and thinker, influential to not just Christian thinkers and philosophers, but, but others as well. He's the guy who helped us begin to think about the fact that God is eternal, that he exists outside of space and time. Um, he's the one who's helped us think more significantly, uh, more theologically rather, about the idea of original sin. Okay? He's quoted as saying this, Woman does not possess the image of God in herself, but only one taken together with the male who is her head. But as far as the man is concerned, he is by himself alone the image of God, just as fully and completely as when he and the woman are joined together as one, or into one. So man on his own can reflect the image of God, but, but woman can't. The only way she possibly could is if she was attached to a man who's the, the true image bearer. That's what he says. 
Tertullian, go back to 2nd century, 1st and 2nd centuries when he was writing. One of the first uh, defenders of the Christian faith. He's the one who put theology into Latin. He's the first one to use the word trinitas, which is the trinity to help us think about that, that God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Significant thinker. He wrote this in a letter in the 2nd century to women. Okay? For context. You are the devil's gateway, he says. You are the unsealer of that tree. You are the first forsaker of the divine law. You were the one who persuaded him, get this, whom the devil was not brave enough to approach. So as if, 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 it, oh. You get, okay, oh. It's like, women, men never would have possibly sinned if you didn't come into the picture and mess this whole thing up. Right? And all of us, men, and women, we're all like, uh, it probably would have been faster. That's what I tend to think. Right? And so what do we do with this? Because like I said, these are heavyweights, okay? These are significant influencers into the Protestant tradition of following Jesus. And so, so much of what they said is still taught. So much of what they said is treated almost as, 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 as evangelical orthodoxy, so to speak, as in core doctrines that are important. So we don't dismiss everything that is said. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. However, there are some things that even reading them out, even as we've heard them, like, isn't that repulsive? Isn't that disgusting? Which means we have to do the work of sifting through all of this because remnants of this anti-woman misogynistic teaching and thought process has absolutely remained even to this day into the modern era of Christianity. It's still there to the point where some of the um, some skeptics, the reasons that they're the reasons that they're skeptic uh, skeptical of Christianity, um, for example, is is this. Here's a quote I took from um, a, a skeptic writer. She's from the west coast of the United States. The Judeo-Christian tradition of building up men by tearing down women goes all the way back to the most ancient parts of the biblical collection, to the opening pages of Genesis, and continues unabated through the New Testament. So the idea here is why would I want anything to do with this? This tradition, this religion, this teaching that has always been this, from page one to the last page, it's all there. But why am I telling you this? Is this like to bum you out? Is this to enrage you? Maybe. Maybe there's like a holy anger that's, right, that's, that's bubbling up inside of you. Maybe it's that. But there's a whole bunch of reasons. One reason in particular is that 50.4% of Canada is female. Okay? If we look at, if we look at the, the church at large, okay, not just our church, but every church, everybody's following Jesus everywhere. I don't know the exact number, but, but typically they say that there are far more women who are followers of Jesus than there are men. Okay? So it, uh, one of the things is that if any type of this thinking exists, or even, even to a little bit, then it doesn't just affect the 50.4%. It affects 100% of the population because this is not a womanhood issue or a manhood issue. This is a human issue. This is a people issue. And so we've got to pay attention to it. And perhaps you haven't really thought about this. Perhaps it's just, well, that's what I know or whatever. And so there's been this idea of complacency. Oh, that's the way it is. And actually, if we're complacent about something like this, then we're contributing to the problem at hand. And so we've got to be aware of it. So my goal for today, uh, there is, like I've said, so many different things we could possibly say. So my goal for today is to try and do one thing. And that is answer the question, does the story of God really give this perspective on women? Okay. Does the story of God line up with the cultural narrative we've been led to believe that we've been taught, or does it say something completely different than that? That's what we're going to try and do. And actually, towards the end of the message, we're going to see a video 
uh, from a woman in our congregation named Kathy Clausen, and she's going to talk about what it means to be a woman made in the image of God, and that's like the real sermon. So everything I'm going to just talk about until we get there, this is all the intro, okay? So in order to understand or answer this, begin answering this question, does the story of God tell the same story that we've been led to believe, we have to go back to the beginning of the story, which is creation, right? Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and Vijay and I are going to go back there a whole lot because that's where humanity began, right? So we see in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 27 in particular, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I so badly wanted to put people kind in brackets just for fun. So God created people. God created man and woman, male and female. He created them. One commentator on this says that this clearly states the distinction of the sexes. This clearly, this, this clearly states that there is male and that there is female and that this is a matter of divine uh, divine origin, which means that sexuality is far from a biological accident. In the coming weeks, we're going to start talking about gender and sexuality and orientation and all of these things, and all of it comes back to here. But its relevance for us today is that very plainly it says that both male and female were created in the image of God. And so Vijay opened up this entire series by talking about how humans were created with the purpose of imaging, reflecting to the rest of the world the character of God, the attributes of God, the person of God as best that we can. And so in their perfect re, um, relationship in the garden between Adam and Eve, they were able to do this. But then something happened that kind of threw the entire thing off. And so this idea that men are the primary image bearer, even if we just were to use this one verse, we say that there's a tremendous problem with that line of thinking, right? Now, at the same time, we can't go way far and the pendulum swing to the other side and say that, that women are the only ones who image God as well. We, we can't say that. Why? Because male and female, he created them in his image, okay? So male and female together. And so both men and women have been created to equally reflect the image of God. There's a second thing, though we get to when we get to chapter 2 of Genesis. And this is another part of this ongoing conversation that's taken place between the roles of males and females, the way that they're meant or designed to interact with each other. And so it says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the word helper that's used here has very often been used as a, as a word that's talking about this idea of inferiority. Okay? So superiority and inferiority. Obviously, Adam was made first. The man was made first. So there's an element of, pref uh, of preference. There's an element of superiority over the woman. So if we just look at just the order argument, that's one place where that, that type of thinking comes from. But then you get this word helper, which can almost be a bit of a disservice unless we go and see what it says in its original language, which is actually this word azer. Okay, and so this word azer is a word, helper, but it's a word that's actually given, a title that's ascribed to God throughout various parts of Scripture, to say that God is the azer of Israel. God is the azer of humanity. God is the helper of people. So we would, like, let's just stop and think about this. If we look at the order of creation, first of all, we could say, well, Adam must have some type of preference because he was created first. But you know who came first? The creator, God. So no one would say that the created is more superior than the creator. Are you with me? Okay? So there's the creator. Yes, then there's Adam, then there's Eve. But Eve is given this name helper, which actually ties her to God, who's superior to Adam. Now, again, I'm not going to do this pendulum swing thing where I say that one is more important than the other. I'm not going to do that because I think that breaks down the whole argument. But what I am saying is that Eve's role as Azer, the helper to Adam, the helper to the man, 
is because there is an absolute insufficiency in man all by himself. And so like God helps humanity, Eve was created to help man. You with me on that? Okay, check out this quote. Azer does not imply, you have this? Yes. Azer does not imply that the woman is inferior to the man, especially since a perceived insufficiency in Adam, in Adam to image God prompted Eve's creation. Okay? So Adam, on his own, could not image or reflect the character of God, the person of God. He couldn't do that by himself. That's the insufficiency. That's where Eve comes in. That's why we say both man and woman equally do this together. And the pronunciation of Azer resembles Zerah, which means seed or offspring, which expresses that Eve is an essential part of humanity, imaging God as creator of life. And there's this beautiful undertone in that, which is that as women are designed by God to be able to give birth, there's actually a way that women are able to relate and interact with the creator style, the creatorship, creatorship, the creator element, character, whatever that is, of God. There's a way that women can interact with God in the process of creation that, that man can't. Yes, men play a significant role in the creation when it comes to having children, but as women deliver, as they go through labor, as they are able to do, they have this way of engaging with God as the creator, the giver of life. Isn't that cool? So we can't say that this is an issue of inferiority and superiority. If we are going to play that argument, we say, yes, God is superior, 100%. And we are inferior to him, but he's our azer. Adam created on his own, couldn't do it, couldn't image. The insufficiency meant that God had to create Eve to be the azer, to be the helper. And together, male and female image reflect, the image, reflect God. Okay? Did God create Adam first? Yes. Why did he do that? No idea. <laughs> gotcha. But that's what the creation story tells us. That's the order that the creation story goes into. But there's something there that's not actually about the created order per se. Because, I mean, if you really want to get into that, then you can talk about how the animals came first and the, the trees came first and all that. That's not what it's about. What it's saying is that man and woman saved for last. There's also this idea that I think is beautiful, is that God is finished creating when he created Eve. So he wasn't done yet. And then he creates woman. And woman is beautiful. Woman is unlike anything else anyone has ever seen, unlike anything else Adam had ever seen. Right? And so, what's the purpose of all this? Human history begins with Adam and Eve, man and woman, male and female, created equally in the image of God for the purpose of showing the rest of creation what God is like. But this is where things go wrong. The moment that Adam and Eve chose to trust in themselves over trusting in God, when they said, I don't want to live according to your rules, according to your law, I want to take things in my own hand, the moment that they sinned, all of this was broken. And this is where death and brokenness entered into the world, and it affected creation, it affected humanity, and it affected the relationship of, beauty, of beautiful equality that existed between man and woman. It was broken. To the point where one pastor, a man by the name of Eugene Cho, he, he pastors at a church in Seattle, he says that the oppression... Uh, that women have faced as the result of how they are viewed is the oldest injustice in the world, he says. So, remember, we're asking the question, does Scripture tell the same story, does God tell the same story about women that the, the, the general cultural narrative would have us believe? Thus far, the answer is no. But we have to deal with something, we have to deal with something that happened. If this is the oldest injustice, we have to deal with what happened from the time of like Genesis chapter 3 uh, all the way to the time of Jesus, 
and then even that exists in today. And the cool thing about Jesus, the great thing about Jesus, is that when he was sent to earth by God to live a human life, he, he came to demonstrate what it means to be the most true, perfect human. And we can think about this just by means of morality or obedience to God. There is an element of that, absolutely. But he demonstrates what it means to live life as a person the way that God had, de had defined it originally in creation. And so he begins to reestablish the relationship between man and woman and everybody else by living out his life. And so when we go to his story, the very beginning of his story, as you can see, as Dave read for us earlier, the very beginning, Jesus hadn't done anything, when the, right? Okay. It's just the story of his family tree. We already see that he is going to be subverting the cultural narrative time and time again. And so let's look at the genealogy of Jesus. Total, be honest with me, okay? Let's take a poll. When you're reading scripture, you come to a genealogy, a lineage, a family tree. Put up your hand if you skip it. Okay. Right. Put up your hand if you read it. There's a couple. Great. Beautiful. You should. We ought to. There's something there. One of the reasons we skip over it is because we don't necessarily know how to pronounce it or what sense to make of it. Dave's been practicing for three weeks because he was supposed to do this on the ice storm Sunday. So he, was th he prayed for ice so we could get a couple more weeks. The, the thing about a, about a lineage or a genealogy is it tells, us about, it tells us about a person's story. Most importantly, it tells us about where a person came from or who they came from, for that matter. And so what would take place is that a lineage, a family tree, these kinds of things would be to prove how pure a person was. If they were linked to royalty in any way, if they had any significant people in their life, if there was wealth, they wanted to elevate that, which means on the flip side, they would often leave people out that would potentially mar or wreck the reputation of that particular person. So if you had like a crazy uncle or somebody who did something else, you just leave them out and hopefully they got forgotten in history, but you put all the important people up at the front. You know, people are like, yeah, Brad Pitt's my 17th cousin twice removed through my, form, my dad's former roommate. You know, people say that kind of stuff. They would want to do that to pull in these important people. I have no idea why I picked Brad Pitt. No idea. But just follow along with what I'm saying here, okay? As best as you can. And so, no matter your level of expertise or, or familiarity with ancient family trees, the story, or Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family tree, does something significant from the beginning in that it includes the name of five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right from the beginning, if this is the only chapter you had in Scripture, the only 17 verses you have, you can see that Jesus is unlike any other person. Even if all you had was all the other ancient Near East le uh, literature and all that kind of stuff, you can see, well, there's something different there because women were listed. And the patriarchal values of the time said that a woman only had value as it was associated to her or given to her through her association or affiliation with a man. So a woman only had value and was only worth mentioning if she was attached to or, or by relationship to her, to her husband or to her father or something of the sort. And so Jesus already is beginning to subvert this a little bit. And so let's just, we can't, we're not going to look at all five of these women, but let's look at two of them in particular. Let's look at Mary for starters. Mary, the mother of Jesus. She played a significant role in the life of Jesus. Would you agree with me? Yeah? She gave birth to Jesus. That's a big deal. Okay? So, another way of saying this is that God entrusted Jesus to the womb and the care of a teenage girl. Okay? There's, a, there's weight to that. That's an important thing. We could say this another way. Jesus could not have come to earth to do what he was sent to do unless there was a woman involved in the process. 
Now, some of you didn't like when I said Jesus couldn't. You might be saying, well, God could do anything he wants. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God can do anything he wants. Of course, if he wanted to do it some other way, he could. To which I would say, yeah, okay, but that's not my point. The point is that he can do everything he wants. He is all-powerful, and here's how he chose to do it. He chose to empower a woman for the sake of bringing to earth the Savior of all humanity. The significance of the role that women were brought in to play. And so how can we think that women are some sort of an afterthought to God? How can that exist in church history if we look at it this way? Women are essential to God, to the point where God's whole plan for all of his creation began with a woman, and a teenage girl for that matter. And so society belittled and hardly even noticed women, but God subverts the cultural norms by empowering Mary to do uniquely what only a woman could do. Next point. If these women were still alive today, all of them would share at least one thing in common, and that would be that they'd all be a part of this hashtag MeToo campaign. Because all of these women, as you read through their stories, have an element of sexual stigma or sexual brokenness. Again, we can't look at all of them. We don't have the time, but let's look at one, Bathsheba. You noticed in the lineage that she was associated, her name I don't think was mentioned, but it says wife of Uriah. Okay, right? That affiliation to the man. Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah the Hittite's this guy, he's fighting in the army, he's out and about. Bathsheba is at her place doing what she always does, living her life as she normally does. She begins to bathe herself. King David, who's supposed to be this great man after God's own heart, supposed to be this ultimate amazing warrior king, supposed to be a boss, is not fighting with his soldiers because he's disobedient, really. And so as he's wandering around his palace, totally bored, he sees Bathsheba and he says, I want Bathsheba. And he goes and gets Bathsheba, and he sleeps with her. And then she gets pregnant. And when she gets pregnant, David has her husband, Uriah the Hittite, sent to the front lines to guarantee his death. So David becomes a murderer in this process to cover up his whole story here, which means that Bathsheba is a victim. How do we look at this and say that this could, like, she's a victim. And, and all of these women, in one way or another, had an element of, like I said, sexual brokenness or stigma associated with them. And I can't tell you how many times, as I was studying, reading through commentary after commentary, where people wrote that the only reason women were put into the genealogy of Jesus was to make the point that Jesus came from a line of sinful humans and that women are the worst. That was the point they were trying to make. And, and I was brokenhearted by that. I was busted up by that. Why? Because if that was the point Matthew, the writer, was trying to make, there were 42 men, and David was listed, and the sin that he committed was actual sin. Bathsheba was a victim, and yet she gets exploited. It's somehow her fault. She somehow gets blamed for this, is the view. I could not wrap my head around that. So what is God trying to do? Why are the women there? Why are these women there? There could have been other women. Why are these five women there? He's trying to tell us something about his perspective of women that had been broken throughout the course of history. And that is that, yes, Jesus came from a line of sinful people to be the Savior of all humanity. But these women in particular, I think, show us Jesus' heart for the exploited, for the widow, for the victim, the ones who've been trafficked, the ones who live with sexual stigma, the ones who live in that feeling of constant abuse, even if it's somehow over, you still live with it. Jesus came to say, no, 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 I'm not ashamed of you. You're my people. I'm here for you. And women, hear me on this. You need to know that actually Jesus 
could be a part of the Me Too campaign as well because in the process of his arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, to his crucifixion, he was stripped naked and he was mocked. Jesus understands what it means to be a victim of sexual abuse. Yes, I know that sexual abuse is varied and there's all these different ways that it can, but Jesus understands that in, in, in such a way. And I think what Jesus is saying to all of us, but women, I think one thing that Jesus is saying to you is that he's not ashamed of you. He understands you. He identifies with you. And he takes your stigma, he takes your pain, he takes those things, and he gives you his dignity. And I'm broken by this because I know that I have been a contributor to this problem. If you've been with us, you've heard me talk about some of my experience with pornography. And we're not going to go into all of that, but, but users of porn directly fuel the need for human trafficking. There's a direct connection, a direct line of connection. So the exploitation of women, the exploitation of people in general, Jesus came to say, no, no, these are, I'm here for you. That's why they're there. One more thing that this genealogy tells us before we get to Kathy's video. Jesus taught the disciples that women are valuable and important even when nobody else agrees. And so, we know this, again, simply because the women, the names of women are included in the genealogy. This would have potentially discredited Matthew's writing altogether. This would have discredited Jesus' testimony altogether, again, because of the cultural norms at the time. But then what we see by these women being listed there and other women that play out in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first books of the, of the New Testament, one thing we see is that women are placed in particular places at particular times for the purpose of playing a distinct role. So get this. Women were the first ones to be witnesses of the empty tomb. So why did that happen? Women, uh, um, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome went to, the, went to Jesus' tomb and they went with spices and stuff, which is like, you know, they wanted to go to the decaying body that they thought was going to be there to dress it up, to make it smell nice. They're like, when we go and put flowers, it was like a visit, right? And even as they're walking there, they're like, who's going to move the stone? That's, that's a pretty big issue. Where were the men, by the way? It's a good question. Running away, denying him, not wanting to be associated with him. But these women are coming to Jesus because he obviously showed them how valuable they were to him. And when they get there, surprise, surprise, he's not there. And so they go from the tomb, follow me, from the tomb to go find the other male disciples, to tell the male disciples that Jesus was not there, that he had resurrected for the dead. Which means, for that period of history, women were the only preachers of the gospel message that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And you know what the men said when the, day, when the, when the women got back to the disciples? You know what the men said? Oh, we got to see this for ourselves. Why? Because they discredited their testimony. They didn't believe them because even the male disciples who would spend three years with Jesus were still victim. Were, uh, I don't want to say the word victim, maybe. We're still products of their environment. So we go see for ourselves. And when they got there, it, they, he wasn't there. <laughs> and so the culture said women can't be trusted. God risks everything by entrusting the most valuable, I mean, look at Mary again, the most valuable part of God's whole plan, the birth of Jesus, right through to the, ascent, or the resurrection of Jesus. All of that is entrusted to women who are put in a specific place at a specific time. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote this, Jesus speaking a woman's name as the, as the first word 
in the New Age, referring to after his resurrection, was an act of incredible significance. He wanted women to know that the old way of denigrating, exploiting, and marginalizing one half of his creation was over. Now what we pull away from this is one thing in particular. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this in his genealogy. This is the beginning of his, of his eyewitness account. He writes this. So, Jesus must have taught Matthew that even though it might seem that the cultural norm, the cultural narrative is that these women will discredit you, people might not take seriously your eyewitness account, these women are valuable, women are important, you're going to put them there. And so the disciples, somewhere in this whole process, learned from Jesus that there's a different way of treating women. So, just from what we've looked at, does the story of God tell us the same story that the cultural narrative would have us believe? No. Absolutely not. No, it does not. And, and like, Jesus hasn't done anything yet as far as the story is concerned. So you start reading the Gospel of Matthew, you see this, this is what you can pull out of there. As you keep reading throughout the, the eyewitness accounts, what you're going to see over and over and over again that Jesus identifies with women, he goes out of his way to associate with them, he advocates for them, he defends them, he forgives them, he heals them, very clearly distinguishing himself from any other spiritual or religious leader of the time and saying to these women, God is for you, because you were made for God. So, we are going to watch a video, like I said, the real sermon. And this is uh, Kathy's perspective on what it means to be a woman made in the image of God. So it's a little bit of a longer video, it's about eight minutes, but it's worth it, hang on. And uh, then I'm going to come back with a few concluding thoughts uh, once that's finished. My name is Kathy, and uh, I've known Jesus since I was about eight years old. And um, when I think about what it means to be a woman that's made in the image of God, it kind of blows my mind to actually think about that. And um, I think many times God is kind of presented as male, and yet when you actually look in Genesis, it says that he created us, mankind, in his image, male and female. So when I think about the fact that there's aspects of who God is that I have a responsibility to kind of radiate to the world, that's kind of cool. I guess how it's affected me to kind of the incredible honor of being a woman uh, is in some ways in the home that I grew up in, I had a real privilege of growing up with a mom and dad who, I mean, especially, you know, roles weren't a big thing. Like my dad was often in the kitchen doing the dishes or whatever. It was okay for me to be outside mowing the lawn. And so I kind of grew up with this, there was never a restriction on what I could do or where I would go. And um, so that, that was kind of significant, which I think was also kind of the heart of God because I don't, I think we spend so much try, time trying to define who we are by what we do, but that's not what God says, right? So we are who we are based on how he's made us, and he hasn't made any mistakes. So I remember um, I never really set out to be a pastor. It was really my pastor who kind of pursued me and uh, started, you know, encouraging me. Although I had a degree from a Bible college and stuff and was involved in ministry, I never saw myself being in a pastorate role and I remember one time asking the Lord why have you made me a woman and put me in a role that seems to be mainly for men 
And I just remember him really clearly just impressing on me and speaking to me that the very call that he had on my life I needed to be a woman for and that there would be places that he was going to open doors for me that I would only be able to get in as a woman. And um, so that has been interesting to kind of see that unfold. And um, I think a verse that I've leaned into is the doors that God opens no man can shut. And if God wants you somewhere, he will put you there. It has little to do with, you know, you're not going to be limited by your gender. When I look at Jesus and just what it means to be in relationship with Jesus as a woman, like, wow, it's, I can't, I'm so glad I'm not a man because I don't know how guys do it. But there's a level of intimacy that I totally enjoy. Like there are times when I'm worshiping in church. I used to attend a church where we had a cross up at the front. And there were times in the worship where I would just feel like Jesus was coming down and asking me, can I have this dance? And then, you know, so if you see me kind of dancing in church a little bit, I'm probably not dancing alone. Um, there are other times I'm single and, uh, you know, there are times when I've just leaned into Jesus as my spouse. I remember one time um, my car died and I really needed another one and I just said you know what you're supposed to be my husband I need a new car and within 10 days I had a brand new car financing and everything was sorted out and I remember sharing this with a friend of mine and uh, he said man I'd keep a husband like that he said I sure can't do that for my wife so when I think about what it means to be a woman in today's culture. There's so many different facets to it. Like in one sense, I've teased people that this is the most amazing time to be a woman because you can kind of pretend like, oh, that box is just too heavy. I can't lift it. And then some macho guy will come and lift it. Or you can walk over and pick it up yourself and carry it, you know? So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. But on the other hand, I think the reality, one of the things that's really missing in our culture is people are desperately looking for their dignity and they're looking for their sense of purpose. And as a woman, the culture suggests that I need to get that from my beauty, from my, uh, maybe even my position. You know, in olden days, it was how many kids you had. Now maybe it's how many uh, letters you have behind your name and no matter what it is no matter what generation you've come out of the reality is those things will not give you the sense of dignity and purpose that you need because as a woman I am a daughter of God and that's just like that's just like the most amazing thing because you know what my dad really is bigger than anybody else's in the parking lot in the playground and um, I can call on him at any time and so I'm never alone and uh, I know that's true for guys too but I think especially for women I, I know that there's a need um, just for covering and protection I don't think that you know I guess people might think differently about that but uh, um, I like to be covered and to be protected, and it's important. And so I think when I know that I have that, not only in God the Father, but even in the body of Christ, you know, I have brothers in Christ who care for me. That's huge. And um, 
And that for me isn't a weakness thing. It's just, it's a reality. I think another thing, our culture, you know, we talk a lot about desperately needing fathers, which we do, but there's a lot of people that really, really need to be mothered. They really need the nurture. And the thing that I love about God is he's not afraid of his feminine side. Like if we are made in God's image, male and female, you know, I mean, some of the names of God, like the almighty God means the the many-breasted one, you know, and he talks in Isaiah about having you kind of dandle on his knee and of him nursing you at his breast. And it's like God is so, he's just so outside of the box. And we're always trying to put everything in a box. And um, so I just love the idea of being able to explore what it means to be a woman from the God's perspective, not from man's perspective. And, you know, a verse, a go-to verse on all this for me, actually a go-to chapter is Proverbs 31. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes women are so desperately trying to find themselves that they're like, well, you know, I can't just be a stay-at-home mom. That's lesser. I got to be a CEO or whatever. But the reality is the Proverbs 31 woman does it all. Like there's... You know, she can do it all. And I think there's huge potential in women to do it all. But then at the tail end of that passage, he just says, you know, don't get caught on the beauty thing and the charm thing and all that. The real goal is as you fear the Lord, you're going to come into this place of just eternal beauty and eternal dignity that will never be taken from you. So just a few thoughts by way of application. What do we do about this to help, help us all reflect a little bit? And then Anna will come and pray for us in just a moment. Um, if you're here and you're a man or a woman and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just checking things out, maybe you still categorize yourself as a skeptic, you're not so sure, um, a question I would love for you to ask yourself is, um, in what ways have I believed the stereotypes, you know, I just, that Christianity is this, this anti-woman thing? And, and in, in what way has what you've learned today pushed up against that a little bit? See, admittedly, followers of Jesus haven't always done a good job representing the ones whom we follow. And so what, I say, what I'm saying to you in that is, look to the one we follow. Look to Jesus. I'm not trying to get us off, off the hook. Okay? We have a lot to repent of, a lot of work we need to do, and we are working on that, absolutely. But look to Jesus. Like, who is he? How has he interacted with women? What, with women? How, how has he subverted the cultural narrative in, in his story? Um, men. I want you to go and find one or two women in your life, and I want you to ask them this question. In what ways have I contributed to treating you as less valuable than you truly are because of your gender? You take a picture of the screen, but I want you to go and ask that to a woman that you are in a relationship. It might be your spouse, it might be your mom, it might be your, it could be anybody, it could be a coworker, it could be whatever. But after you ask the question, you need to stop talking. And it's possible that um, whoever you ask will have a bunch of responses ready to go. It's also possible that whoever you're asking will say, wow, I need some time to think about that. If, if they say that, respect them. <laughs> let, let women take as much time as you need. Some of you women are going to be asked this question, right? You can't bring it up, women. This is for the men to do. It's their responsibility. Take, okay. Um, 
And, and then men, I also want us to all think about, myself included, we all need to think of like, what are the ways that we have just viewed women so wrongly? How have we contributed to this view of the church that, that people have that we are anti-woman? How have we been a part of that? And wh- where do we need to repent? Uh, where do we need to get before God and say, God, I need you to change me around this? Where do we need to get before other people and, and ask their forgiveness? And lastly, women, you are valuable to God. You are essential to God. You are made in his image and he has given you a distinct person in reflecting to him, to the world, what he's like in a way that actually no man could on his own. And so yes, men and women were both made to do that, but there are so many ways in which women, like Kathy has said, there's so many ways in which you're able to do that that we men can't do. So remember that. You're valuable. You're important. You matter. And here's a question I want you to consider and reflect on as well. Knowing that Jesus has liberated you from the way that history has bound you up, how has God uniquely gifted you and where has he uniquely placed you to live out his image more intentionally? Maybe you need to say, I don't know if I'm liberated yet. Maybe you're still seeking the face of God. You're seeking to see, okay, Jesus, how do you rescue me from this? But say, I want to believe this. Ask him to liberate, ask him sense that. Maybe you need to talk that through with other people, whatever it is. But then once you come to that understanding, figure out where is it that he's placed you uniquely. In that particular job, in your particular family, on your particular street, around your particular dinner table, whatever it might be. He's got a purpose for you. Uh, Anna's going to come and she's going to pray. And um, and then we'll, we'll sing together. Love you guys. Before I pray, um, my name is Anna, and I have a great privilege to pray for our congregation uh, today. And, uh, you know, in light of the, the recent Young and Finch um, tragedy that happened, my, my heart is real close to, the, to this tragedy, and uh, especially since um, at least four of the victims, the latest news, um, said that uh, they were identified as Koreans, and I identify myself as a Korean person here today. Um, and then it's crazy how thinking of about this tragedy made me think of um, what VJ preached last week, that our society desperately needs to change, and that it takes both women and men. And uh, in light of that, I want to just pray for us. So would you join me as I pray? Jesus, there's so many stories of how you approached women. And one story that spoke volumes to me in thinking and praying for today's service is a story in John chapter 4 when you interacted with a woman at the well. You spoke both truth and love into this woman's life and set her free from her past and didn't just uh, stop there, but empowered and encouraged her to live a new life. I believe with all my heart that this isn't just a story for the woman at the well, but for every woman here today. As we heard Kathy's story, similarly, my life will never be the same as he has freed me from my past and healed and blessed me not to just stay there, but empowered me to be a channel of God's grace to others that are just as broken, 
just as imperfect and human just as I am. If Jesus did this for me, I believe that he can also do it for you. Jesus, I believe that you are still continuing your work here in our community to touch the lives of women who are desperately needing to see a fuller picture of who you are. And through that, finding worth, value, and courage in our true identities in which you've created us to be and to live that out. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth to redefine many things, one of which is to redefine how women are viewed and treated in our society. Thank you that you have created both men and women as equal and essential and fully reflecting who you are. What you deem important is not about the hierarchy between men and women, male power or female power, but rather about partnership, equally giving voice to both genders to be part of your restoration and healing process of our brokenness. Jesus, you are the truth and the life to all people. Thank you that you were and you continue to be close to the rejected people of society, those that we classify as irredeemable, and to the weak, and you openly give opportunities to follow you. Would you continue to invite us into following you and give us a strong passion and desire to accept that invitation, both female and male. Continue to teach us how to be a godly woman where we are clothed with strength and dignity speak with wisdom and faithful instruction is on our tongue and raise us to be a woman who fears the Lord. As we do that, may our husbands, brothers, fathers, uncles, male mentors, figures, etc., in our lives be well respected. For the men, God, I pray that you would continue to teach men how to be a godly man who is clothed in humility, full of your passion and teachable, one who is willing to learn and model your ways in treating women. Help us both to be flexible and willing to change in our own stuck ways of being women and men. Help us to see and treat each other as your healing agent in building your kingdom, your right side up kingdom. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your desires to touch us again and again so that we see ourselves and people the way you want us to. Unblind our eyes and touch our ears to hear you speak to us so that we can become channels of your grace to the oppressed, hungry, marginalized, tired, untaught, and the weak. As we catch a much clearer picture of who you are, Jesus, whatever door you have for us to pass through, I pray that we would go there willingly and obediently. And in light of what happened, Jesus, of the recent tragedy, Kate prayed this before, and I'm so thankful of it. That all of us here, left to ourselves, are capable of doing such things. So Jesus, we need you. As we heard from the latest news report, that this was intentionally targeted towards women. God, we desperately need to change. Our society needs you. So would you continue to teach and to embrace us in your grace so that we can live as godly women and as godly men as you intended us to be. In all these things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Why don't we just stand together and just uh, sing this bridge and chorus as a closing tonight?